Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. It's the seven-year anniversary of the show this week. So I am Menas, and I am in a great mood to start the show off. Joining me is Paul Dennett. Paul, how are you? G'day, Menas. Very good. Seven years. Incredible. Great achievement. Well done. I'm a bit disappointed just to talk local current events by the England-Pakistan test match being largely wiped out. I'd planned five nights in front of the TV. So a bit disappointed about that. But other than that, raring to go. And the other panellist today is Jaleesa Apps. Jaleesa, we missed you last week. How are you? I'm good. Yes. Well, I was also sad to have that test match rained out, but I was selfishly, I didn't have as much FOMO because I was doing a little bit of a road trip around rural New South Wales. So I didn't have an ability to watch it. I did have it on my phone, but it's not the same. So when I, no commitment. when there kept being rain, I was like, <laughs> yes, no FOMO. Oh, well, so um, I'm glad you're the only one happy about the rain out. I spent like basically three nights just waiting for the rain to end. Very (laughs) frustrating. One thing on that, though, the... um it is good that Foxtel is taking their full, basically the full English coverage before play, after play with the rain makes such a difference. They, I mean, the quality of the Sky coverage when they've got hours and hours of no cricket, they're, they're really good. Oh, I have to agree. Sometimes I, in that first, when I saw like a couple of the little packages, I was like, wow, it's actually a shame if there's not a little bit of rain because all these great, yeah. beautiful packages won't ever go to air. They they do very well. Well, are you talking about Shane Warne in particular there, Jaleesa? No, I'm talking about the lovely you know black lives matter package and then they had a pakistan package and more warning 
that is, I will never say no to more warning. <laughs> Just a little tip for all you podcasting fans out there. A lot of those Sky Sports segments uh, are actually released as podcasts later on. So I heard one between Atherton, Hussain and Warren on test captaincy that was fascinating so go and find that but in our podcast we've got all the cricket headlines i have an exclusive chat with australian captain aaron finch and then we're going to bring it on home with our seven year anniversary special segment and can't let it go but let's get into the headlines brought to you by piccolo podcast so the first headline the australian tour of the uk is on The Australian men's team will depart from Perth on Sunday, August 23rd and travel to Derby. They will play four practice matches before playing England in three T20 internationals and three one-day internationals at the Aegeus Bowl in Southampton and Emirates Stadium at Old Trafford in Manchester. The details are that they don't have to quarantine when they get to England. At the moment, all the Australian international players are self-isolating and they will be tested for COVID this Thursday. They'll get the results back on Friday and we hope they all pass those tests. But they will have to quarantine in Perth on the way back and it is yet to be confirmed whether they will be able to train or not. So keep your fingers crossed that they can train. But yeah, great that the Aussies will be taking on the Poms early next month. Absolutely. And don't worry about them having to deal with the quarantine. What about us back home? This is where the true fans are sorted out. The the, the T20s are starting at 3am. Next one is at 11pm. And the next one is at 3am. And all the one dayers start at 10 o'clock and go all night long till about seven in the morning. So if you watch every single ball of that, then you are a, a, a gifted human being. That is music to my insomniac ears. I <laughs> uh, will be hitting record on a lot of those matches and watching them later on. Now, <laughs> the big inclusions in the Australian squad are that Daniel Sams, Josh Philippi and Riley Meredith are all touring England. We've also got Glenn Maxwell and Marcus Stoinis back. The, probably the biggest exclusion would be Usman Kawaja. What do you two think of those inclusions? It's interesting that they're going to have 21. So when they have these intra-squad practice games, I reckon that we're going to have to... Who, who is going to take the 22nd spot? Um, Smith. Smith will want to bat in both teams. <laughs> he will because he hates watching cricket. <laughs> Good that Philippi's in the side. He's, he's the one that I'm most excited about. That uh, I hope they give him a bit of an opportunity and... You know, as we build to the next World Cup, I think he's got to be someone that's in our calculations. Uh, Meredith and Sam's opportunity for them to take. I'm not so convinced that they will be um, featuring in our um, next T20 World Cups, but good luck to them. Daniel Sam's has been picked because of his end of the innings bowling skill. The Australian white ball teams are looking at improving the death overs with the ball. And Sam's is in those plans and also Andrew Ty's in this squad. So... Both of them are pretty proficient with the slower ball. The, the, one of the sort of, well, I'm going to say big news, but it's hardly big news when they drop one vice captain. But uh, Australia have streamlined their approach to vice captaincy. have gone back to the traditional model of just picking one vice captain per team. So uh, Pat Cummins has been named vice captain of this squad. And Aaron Finch spoke to the media earlier today and said that 
He recommended uh, this change from having, well, I think you had Alex Carey as vice captain as well, but also at one stage, Josh Hazelwood was a vice captain. So you almost had it being done by committee, but Finch recommended that they streamline it because it would be easier on the field to just go to say one vice captain, which Paul, uh, it seems like 150 odd years of cricket history has been proven right. Well, it also seems like a pleasant move for us because as much as I I don't dislike Aussie rules. I know you do dislike it, but I do dislike the encroachment of AFL talking to cricket and this whole leadership squad. I think Aussie rules, they have 18 in the team and they have 18 in the leadership squad as well. So that's the welcome change. Yeah, so I'm of the opposite view. I actually think that uh, I like the idea of a leadership group, in particular in test cricket, because I think captaincy has moved so much more than just your decisions on the field. I don't necessarily agree with it in AFL, but that's okay. That's a cricket pod. This is a cricket podcast. So in um, cricket, I like it because I think that, you know, there was a time where it was just so limited to the decisions that you made on the field, the decisions you made in play. But now I think captaincy is so much different in particular with the 24 hour media cycle and the pressure that gets put on and the constant questions. And I imagine that's, incredibly exhausting when you've also got to be so available and I think different people in the Australian cricket team handle that so well and others don't as much and one person I've actually been really impressed with in the past few months is Josh Hazelwood he has really stepped up into just having an opinion on things and being really strong on his convictions particularly during COVID when uh, he was one of the players that really sort of questioned the financial situation and he wasn't afraid to say that to the media when, you know, there was all that dire, there was talk of the dire financial situation. And Josh Hazelwood was one player that said, yeah, well, I can't understand it. And he was, again, a few weeks ago, he was really strong on the fact that the fast bowlers must be able to train when they come back in quarantine. And I just saw this side to him where I was like, wow, you've got real leadership presence. And perhaps you're not the right person to do that on the field, but to handle everything else you are. And that's why I kind of like a leadership group. Yeah, I don't like it because I think it dilutes the responsibility. I think if there's more than one vice captain, you know, they just think the other guy's going to handle it or the other person. Uh, so I like captain, vice captain, but then you have your senior players. And this has been talked about not just with Hazelwood, but with Smith, Warner, all the senior players. They're all leaders in their own way. So I don't think it needs to be formalised. Then if you don't formalise it, aren't you then diluting the responsibility even more? No, because you've got one vice captain who's the vice captain who's sort of in charge of if he sees someone in the corner with their head down, he goes up and he, he gives them a tap on the shoulder and he tells them how good they are. Uh, whereas if you just give that to a few people, then you, one would think he's going to handle it and the other would think he's going to handle it. And then things just slip through the cracks. And yeah, so I think it's a, it's a more rigid structure and I think it works well. Yeah, I suppose. But even like, you know, Steve Smith was talked about as perhaps coming back in as a vice captain this time. I would love to see him as a vice captain, but really a role that just on the field, because I don't think he's the necessarily the best person when he deals with media. He's lovely, but he doesn't have either. He doesn't have a huge opinion on a lot of things that are going on, or he doesn't like to say it. I don't know. But a few months ago when we were talking, he had his sort of first press conference back and we're talking about all these issues that were going on in cricket. Is the world cup going to be on? Is 
is, you know, what are you going to do with spit on the ball? That everything he, his answer to everything was that's above my pay grade. And first of all, I found that really funny because I was like, well, no one is paid more than you, Steve. I don't know who's telling you this, but he is obviously the person on the field that you want looking around with that cricket mind. So I, I don't know. I just, I would have liked to see him as a vice captain, but is a really defined role. Mm. Well, he was considered. Ben Oliver, who's the sort of high performance manager for the Australian team, said Steve Smith was considered at, at that for that role. But, you know, Finch spoke glowingly about Cummins today, saying one of the things that Cummins can do really well is when he comes off the field, separate his on-field performance from what he does off-field. So, you know, he doesn't bring it off into the dressing room if he's had a bad day. And I think that's important for a leader. Yeah, I think obviously it's now we're now getting to the point where it looks like Pat Cummins is the pers- next person that's sort of being groomed for this role. I'd be fine. Now that I've thought about it, I would be fine with him being our next test captain. I think that all the arguments about fast bowlers not being able to do it, I, I think he's fit enough and athletic enough that he could bowl an over briskly and then still be able to make intelligent decisions with regards to the setting of the field, etc. So I'd be quite happy for him to be uh, our next captain. Yeah, I asked actually Ben Oliver... And I've been banging on this for a while now, every press conference I asked, but I said to Ben Oliver, you know, would you like to see Pat Cummins get some experience at captaincy at a domestic level? And, and Oliver says, yes. I mean, you know, he, although he has limited opportunities playing for New South Wales, if he could get some experience there leading a team, it would be very beneficial to the Australian side. And that's no criticism of Peter Neville's captaincy of New South Wales, but I hate this, and there's a bit of mad manners coming out here. I hate this thing where international players go back to Shield cricket and don't assume leadership responsibilities. I found it galling at Dremoyne last year. You had Tim Payne keeping, not captaining Tasmania. You had Matt Wade, the captain. I mean, you can't imagine Alan Border when he was captain of Australia going back to play for Queensland and letting some other joker tell him what to do on the field. So, uh, then how do you expect other people to get experience if you've got the same? like people doing it all the time. Well, you wouldn't though, because you'd have, you'd have leadership experience being given to more than just the Australian captain. You'd have Cummins captaining New South Wales. You'd have senior players going back to lead their states. I think I understand why states want to have a consistent leader right across the summer, but it's not good for the Australian team. I do say, I do totally disagree. I think you can't have a captain that's only, is only available for not even that many games so you think Tim Payne shouldn't captain Tasmania when he goes back there? No, it, depending. I guess depending on the scheduling and how many games he's available for. If he's available for the majority of them, games, it doesn't matter. Sorry, he's the captain. even if it's two games, he should be doing it. Why? He's but he can't captain. captain for the rest of them. Doesn't matter. Then the the next guy takes over. But uh, I think it's a, a bad look for all these leaders. Just checking, when Alan Border went back to um, play for Queensland, he wasn't the captain towards the end of his career. Just checked a random match from 1993, 94, and Ian Healy was the captain. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, Ian Healy was, his, uh, it's the same though, because like, Ian Healy was his vice captain. But I think that it's amazing that you've got this opinion because the other thing that you're big on is the shield to be given authenticity. And you're sort of yes. saying that you want the New South Wales captain to be deposed, not for Sheffield Shield reasons, but to give a player um, experience so that they might one day captain Australia. Normally you're much more 
the shield should be run as a, a legitimate competition, not as a um, as an experiment for test matches. Both things can be true, so I don't think it should be an experiment. But I also don't think putting your Australian players in leadership roles is any way degrading the Sheffield Shield. In fact, it's you know adding gravitas to it. It sort of seems like oh, Tim Payne can't be bothered doing the Tasmanian captaincy when he's there or kind of takes away from the competition. As an Australian, I don't want Tim Payne to be captain of Tasmania because I want him to get a rest. I don't want him to have to do presses and everything. I, I think it would be a great joy for him to play a couple of games to Tasmania and not have to have all that angst because he knows he's going to get months and months of it coming back. Yeah, and I have to no agree comparison, with Paul. No, there's no comparison. No, I have to agree with Paul. There's, there's so no exhausted. media at the Shield. They're, 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 I, I have to agree with Paul on that. They're so. One of the things that all of the cricketers said after this COVID break was how much they needed a break and they were all so burnt out that you don't really need to be giving them more responsibility, especially when there's good leaders in each state that can do that. Oh, well, look, we're just going to go around in circles, but you're both wrong. Um, <laughs> Finch, uh, Finch also isn't this said, like a merry Australian Idol? Like, isn't this a two out of three situation? <laughs> uh, Aaron Finch said that there are no bubble rules yet put in place for his players. Uh, they will address it because obviously the players know that they have the responsibility to keep cricket going. So they'll sort of put some rules around um, bubble regulations. And uh, they're quite concerned about the mental health of the players. I know you just brought it up, Jaleesa, that... You know, you look at Glenn Maxwell and other players that have taken mental health breaks in the last year. We're going to have a, a very stressful situation now with quarantines and bubbles and going from one bubble to another and potentially not seeing uh, family members for months. Uh, so, you know, they're really closely monitoring the mental health of the players. Yeah, I guess it goes one or two ways, doesn't it? Because it, when you do, I don't know, some people who you speak to who are quarantined, just normal people, not athletes, they like the break. They like the break from normal life and have found it uh, a little bit more refreshing. And then other people, it's really, I guess it depends on the kind of person. They find it really difficult to be by themselves and, and to be withdrawn. Yeah. And also I think it's, it's one of these things that as time goes by, your feelings can change that the first week or two might, might be great. But as you keep on waking up each day and just seeing the same cricket ground where you got a duck yesterday out your window, mm. uh, some players might start to... <laughs> really resent it. So uh, I think it's important that they um, do take care of their health on this because it's something that it's easy to be cynical about as well. People can say, oh, you know, aren't they, aren't they finding it tough in a, in a beautiful cricket ground? Yet it, it, it would be a real issue for some people as time starts to creep on. Also for this tour, Andrew McDonald, the Australian assistant coach, is missing the tour because he's going to the IPL to uh, prepare his team there. So instead, Trent Woodhill and Troy Cooley will be assisting Justin Langer. That's the tour of the UK, so they leave this Sunday. It's interesting that we don't know yet whether they're going to be able to train when they come back because the fast bowlers really want to be able to do that. I I wonder if they know and we just don't know. No, I think they're waiting for government advice from the West Australian government. I, I just they probably can't even be, give them a guarantee right now. I think it'll be interesting when we see, hopefully when India come out, uh, whether they quarantine on the way out or they quarantine when they get out because there's well, some risks with both. perfect segue to our next uh, headline, Jaleesa. There was a story in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Daily Telegraph that there are rumours that they could flip the international schedule. And this has been brought about by the fact that 
now that the the IPL has been locked in, they can really look at the you know the the, the logistics of flights and bubbles and and basically the Indian board has a very good point that they want to get the white ball stuff out of the way first so they all their players can quarantine together then they basically play the white ball stuff which can be almost done in two weeks and they send all those players back home and the test players would stay on and obviously the test series is going to be played over you know four or five weeks you wouldn't have to have the white ball players sort of hanging around so we could see um the test matches being played in january and the 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 white ball stuff played first i'm happy with that as well because apart from the, the the reasons that they cited i think there's also something to be said for uh the first big international cricket in australia being white ball cricket because the ratings apparently for the England West Indies Test Series were the highest ratings that Sky has ever had. So there's lots of people who probably don't normally watch cricket who are tuning in. The same thing will happen here. And as much as I love Test cricket and it's my favourite form of the game, it's a much harder, you know, there's a lot more barriers to entry to having fun watching it if you've never seen it before. So get the white ball stuff on, sixes and fours and all sorts of action. I think that's probably better for um, advertising cricket. I would agree with you totally, Paul, except it's not going to be on free-to-air. So I think that would be different. That would be apply if it was on free-to-air, but I don't think you're going to find casual observers with it. And this is the problem with it being on, with only having the white ball cricket on Fox, is that you don't get the casual observers. I've just forgotten that. You're right. Oh, I'm so... Ah, oh, why did they do that TV deal? I know. Um, <laughs> oh. I still can't believe it. I still can't either. It still upsets me. I guess another angle to it is if you played the white ball stuff first, then all the best Australian white ball players could be available for the sort of tail end of the big bash rather than playing India in the, the white ball stuff. That's true. What they should do is actually, I know it's strange times, find a way to get that stuff on um, free to air. Uh, it will benefit everyone if they did that. Find a way to get it on uh, a network. I know it's not going to happen. And I'm not saying that to be uh, um, sort of, naive it could actually be commercially viable for everyone all right the next headline the second test was played between england and pakistan and as we discussed earlier rain was the winner now andy zaltzman from the bbc had some good stats after the game the first one was that when england declared at 110 for four it was the lowest ever score declared in england uh, by one run so a bit of excitement there for paul it's the ninth shortest test in terms of balls bowled in England ever. And no sixes were hit. And it's only the second test since 2017 that has happened in. And uh, that's a weird one, Paul, because when we were growing up, you'd, you'd have a few te- sixes a test match at most and you'd, you'd clamour to see them. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge change that with the bigger bats and the, the different attitudes and, and everything else. I mean, those statistics are nice, but the test match itself was such a disappointment. And um, we'll get into it, but it's partially self-inflicted. You can't do anything about the rain, um, although in years to come, they will have stadiums with roofs on, but that hasn't come around yet. But gosh, that was an infuriating test match to to observe. It's only the third draw in the past 43 tests in England, though. I found that interesting. Yes, that's a good start. It meant to be getting lots of results there. Uh, because the wickets have had a bit of spice in them the last few years. So um, we are seeing lots of result, results, unlike some of the flat tracks we get mm. down under. Now, Shane Warne, he thinks that 
the pink ball should be used all the time in test matches. He thinks that they should come up with a good pink ball and they should just use it day and night. And that would solve this problem that if it got dark, you turn the lights on and the pink ball is easily viewed under the lights. I'm sure Jaleesa agrees with Warney. Oh, Lord and Saviour Warney. This is the rare time I have to go against Warney. I don't agree. I don't agree with Warney. I'm a traditionalist and I am stuck in my ways and I have no other excuse. I just, yeah, I, I don't like, I just hate the idea that we would move away from the red ball. I think that the problem with Warney's suggestion is that the development of a pink ball that replicates the red ball seems a long way, long way off. They've got it yeah. close. They still haven't got it close enough yet. And that we still have to have with the pink ball, lots of grass left on the wicket to give the bowlers a chance. And also the night sessions um, are also giving the bowlers a chance. And I don't think that's the solution. Look, it's worth thinking about. And if they could ever get the pink ball to be good enough, then I'd be all for it. But I think the solution is simple to say, let's use the pink ball when the light is not good enough. Simply, we never have to go off because of bad light during pink ball test matches. The light is now not safe to play. The ball is 42 overs old. Bring out a pink ball that's 42 overs old. And away we go. Now, the, the argument against it is that the pink ball moves too much. And I don't think that's true. The pink ball doesn't move too much. It's just that it's used in conditions that are conducive to movement when there's nighttime and, and grass on the wicket. Five or ten overs while the pink ball is there, um, we get all that extra time in. Next day, it's sunny. We go back to the red ball that's you know suitably aged. And on we go. Because at the moment, if you took someone who'd never seen cricket before and said, why are the, play- the players are all walking off, yet there are beaming floodlights what's going on? And he said, oh, it's because we use a red ball and um, they can't sight it. And then they'd say, why don't you use a different coloured ball? And so well, actually we do. Half the time we use a white ball and half the time we use a pink ball, but we're not allowed to here. They would think that's crazy. Um, you guys are bonkers. And we are. Yeah, I do not like that idea at all. I, don't I, don't, I do think you could affect the, the test match, bringing in a different ball just for an hour. I, I like Warney's idea much better. No, 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 no. no. You can't just dismiss my argument with that rubbish. Just because you don't like it and you've given a glib one-line. The test match has changed all the time. You have conditions that change throughout. The, the ball ages. You get a ball that's no good. You change it. It suddenly starts swinging. You're suddenly having to play the, the, play the game in the first morning when the ball's moving all over the shop. You've got to have a better argument than just you don't like it. Okay, but what if a team's three for 300? They're going along, you know, the, the red balls. As I said, the big ball doesn't swing around. Any well, more than the red ball. It's just that the, the pink ball is normally used on pitches where there's lots of green grass and at nighttime when it starts to move around. On on its own, the pink ball actually moves around less than the red ball. That's what they're so concerned about. No, but under lights, it moved around more. Under lights, when you'd want to use the ball, it would swing around more. The gloomy, dark conditions, you turn the lights on, you bring the pink ball out, all of a sudden it's a bowler's game. Well, I'd say a couple of things on that. One... If we played test matches in a pristine greenhouse up until now and there was, everything was a controlled environment, fair enough, but we don't. And two, even if that's true, I'd still rather the game go on and have some play rather than no play. And three, sure, they could work with the pink ball. You know, they sometimes put a prouder seam on there because of the fact that they're worried about that it'll be um, not moving enough. Reduce the seam size to, to the normal size. Work on the pink ball in that way so that when it is used, it doesn't cause the game to change dramatically. Or otherwise say, okay, well, um, we're going to have to have an artificial pitch used every day so that we keep conditions identical throughout the entire test match. But that's not the argument. The argument is that you play a five-day test match and then, you know, you might have very small bits of the the time that 
would you know really affect the result and you'd have you know a wide variation in the way the ball moves well, that's why that logic then you've got to ban day night tests as well because that's what happens at day night tests i had another thought because i i see what you're saying paul and i agree with you in part but i am a bit of a traditionalist and i don't like bringing another type of ball into a game but i had another thought why can't we just when we play in these kind of conditions uh, England, where you just can't get your weather right. Why can't we set a start setting aside days for rain days? And I know it's hard with scheduling when you've got a lot of cricket packed into a really small time. But with COVID, when you don't really have a lot of cricket packed into a small time right now, why couldn't they have just worked this out a little bit better and had rain days? I know it's 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 different, and we don't do it, and it's not traditional. But then we could play the whole game. I like that idea. Um... But just before that, saying that you're a traditionalist and therefore you want it to be as it is, traditionally, the light was offered to the batting side and the batting side could refuse to take it. And so they'd often play on well into the gloom. So what I'm saying is actually a return to a more traditional style of cricket where you do get to play in um, gloomier conditions. But as for the other idea of the rest days, uh, the extra day, I think the fact that it's not commercially viable would be the problem. But I think for a major mm. series like the Ashes, particularly series in England, where, as you say, the weather can be a problem, having that spare day that you then say, OK, well, we've lost 30 overs, we'll play um, two hours onto the, onto the sixth day, I'd be up for that. And we saw, like, cricket uh, rain play an absolute havoc in the Women's World Cup and the Big Bash. Uh, the, the fact that there was no set day aside for the Big Bash still blows my mind. But, yeah, I, I, I don't know why we can't start looking at this for England. England just is a problem child. We need to sort it out. And Sydney. And Sydney. And Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, I look, that's not going to happen with the way the schedule's so packed together. It isn't, but the schedule's going to have to change, though. The things I don't even understand why I can't start early. That, that, that's even more frustrating than any... It was sunny in the morning and they were waiting till 10.30, you know, get out there at nine o'clock and start the game earlier so you're not affected by the bad light at the end of play. But, Paul, you said they shouldn't play day-night test matches. No, no, no. I said the logical extension of your argument would be they shouldn't play day-night test matches. I love day-night test matches. And a day-night test, they're all played at, like, the, the five days are day-night, so both teams have to play in those conditions and therefore, you know, unless you're just going to bat in the first session every day, you're never going to you're not going to avoid batting at night. So I think it's a, it's a tricky one. The only one I, I think we're all agreeing on is that they could work on the pink ball because that would solve a lot of things. If, if just this last test match, they'd just gone, okay, it's going to be gloomy. Let's use a pink ball. Yeah. That, that would have solved a lot of problems. I would have been happy with that. Well, that is an alternative as well, that if, if the forecast looks abysmal, switch to the pink ball. And if the forecast looks decent, then stay with the, with the red ball. Although then you've got to, who makes that decision, etc. But that would be, it would have been better um, than, than what we had. All right. Now the third test starts this Friday. Uh, Pakistan will be desperate to level the series. They threw a few punches in that second test, but obviously no chance of a result. I believe Friday's test match could be James Anderson's last test match for England probably should be in my opinion he's been a wonderful servant but I think the time has come to put him out to pasture and you know I was thinking about something Robert Craddock said on the radio this week that England would be nuts to send a team out with Stuart Broad and James Anderson somewhere after next for the Ashes and reminds me of the early 90s when England sent you know dad's army out here with Gadding 
Gooch and a few other old stages. And I just think they'd be making a huge mistake. Time to move on from James Anderson. But I don't understand. Why would they be making a huge mistake if they're the best bowlers at that time? Well, Jimmy Anderson's not going to do well in Australia. He's too slow. He's he's just not suited to Aussie conditions. But is there better alternatives? Like, and there might be, but I don't agree with just moving someone on just to move them on. I agree with Julissa that that yeah, I, I tend to agree that, that Jimmy Anderson is probably not going to do all that well in Australia. Although, to be fair, he did do well in 2010-11. Last time out here, he bowled okay. It was just conditions never suited. And although he'll be 39, he's still very very fit. But if the answer is, oh, well, you've got to have pace in Australia, so Mark Wood has to be thrust into the side ahead of him. Yeah. I have this feeling that if Mark Wood comes down to the Ashes, he could take none for 1,200. Um, exactly. The notion of pace being this thing that you've just got to say that unless you have pace in Australia, you can't succeed. You just look at Glenn McGrath and, um, you know, the best fast bowler I've ever seen that Australia's had, and he, he wasn't, wasn't that quick. The notion that you've got to go real, real fast is, is not correct. And I think Stuart Broad, the way he's bowling now, could actually do well come the ashes. But roundabout way, you may well be right, man, as this may well be his last test match. They've got a long way. But, but the thing about Broad and Anderson is it's not to do with their pace or anything, but historically those two have not done well in Australia. Apart from 2010-11, they've come over here and watched their team get absolutely annihilated. Broad takes his wickets at almost... Uh, 40 runs per wicket in this country. So I, I think, you know, I'd much rather an attack led by someone like Archer and Curran and, and you know, you have Wokes and Wood there. I think that's better than Broad and Anderson. I just think it's they've proven that they haven't been able to deliver in Australian conditions time and time again. I think that Broad is a better bowler now than he has been in the past because he's pitching it up more. And I'll tell you what, David Warner would be happy if Broad didn't come out here. <laughs> All right, so enjoy Jimmy Anderson's last test on Friday. And final headline, and you two might have a few words about the great man. MS Dhoni has retired from international cricket. And all I've got to add is, in the seven years of this podcast, Gav Joshi has been a, a big part of the podcast, coming on you know a number of times, a fantastic Indian cricket journalist. And when MS Dhoni re- retired he posted a photo when he went to the movies with ms Dhoni. so gav and uh ms Dhoni went to the movies in sydney together i'm like why didn't gav ever get Dhoni on the podcast for? oh yeah <laughs> such good mates have you two got any fond memories of Dhoni? no um that's because he's such a good player uh, <laughs> that's that's out of respect to him i've got no good fond memories because i so often knowing that he's going to win the match for india that they should have lost i think as far as one-day cricket is concerned, if I'm picking my greatest ever one-day side from all countries, I think I have to have Dhoni as my wicketkeeper, even ahead of Adam Gilchrist. And that makes me cry to say that. Wow. He had an average of 50, which is just unbelievable in one-day cricket. He's got the fastest hands at those thumpings that he breaks the laws of physics on. Uh, yeah, wonderful cricketer. Um, very, very good test player. Very, very good captain of India in one-day cricket. And... Maybe not quite as good a captain as at test match level. I thought he sort of put the feel back a little bit too much. I think that Coley has improved the standard of captaincy at test level, but a superstar of the game and obviously one of the all-time most famous cricketers ever. You look at like Tendulkar, Dhoni and Coley. Those three may be the three most famous cricketers of all time. All right. That was the Cricket Headlines brought to you by Piccolo Podcast. We're going to take our first break and then I will be back with Australian one-day captain, Aaron Finch, who joined me earlier today for a chat. Straight away, that could hit the roof. 
food at Etihad Stadium. G'day, Aaron. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So I reached out to Cricket Australia because it's the podcast's seven-year anniversary this week, and I thought get a special guest on. So none better than the Australian captain. So thanks for your time. Well, congratulations on your seven years. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, I was looking back at your history and I thought we'd sort of just a couple of classic podcast questions to start off. You made your debut for Australia seven years ago in January in an ODI. And I want yep. to start by asking, you know, if you could give some young Aaron Finch some advice then, what would you give him? That's a really good question. I, I think... One thing that I've learned along my journey is to have a really good network of people around you that can help you filter filter all the advice that you get because as as you know the the higher you go up, the more advice that you get and the more people want to help you and i and I think at various times in my career I've probably been someone who's tried tried to listen to too much advice and and I think as as I've got a bit older and wiser, I've been able to filter that and, and tailor that a little bit more to myself uh, in terms of my game than what I did in my in my early days. And uh, now that you've filtered that down, is there any sort of special mentor or, or confidant that you've got now that you go to? The one person I probably use the most is Andrew McDonald. He's someone that I lean on for batting, captaincy, leadership, life. Uh, we've been really close mates for, what am I, 33 now? So 17 years. So to have him to, to sort of to lean on for everything uh, pretty much and... Uh, yeah, he's he's the one person that I go to uh, when I'm most in doubt about about advice or even even relationship advice at times. He's uh, <laughs> he's the one the one constant. He's like my second wife. My my wife calls him. Wow. Yeah, I think your current wife's a bit better looking. Um, <laughs> I had Ron, uh, Ronald McDonald on last summer, and he he's a really grounded bloke. So I couldn't think of anyone better to go to for advice. When, uh, when, when you when you just said then that that my current wife. Are you suggesting that this my first marriage isn't going to go that well? <laughs> no, it was just a slip of the tongue. I think you're okay. Um, <laughs> has, has married life been good for your batting form? Look at the stats. Um, I, I, it's been good for my life. I don't know. I don't know if that's translated into my batting. You, you probably know more than me if you dove into a few stats. But oh, apart from when I first got married, I, I ducked off a day later to the IPL and, and didn't have my best IPL. But I think since then there's been a lot of ups and downs and on the field and yeah I think over the last probably 12 months it, it smoothed out to be a great great ride um, yeah but there's definitely been some challenges in there was there a moment in your Australian career where you felt like you kind of belonged at international level was there one innings or, or one summer or something that's a really good question uh, there was an innings at the MCG I played against England a one day game where I got 100 in a, in a chasing win and I, I can't say that that was a definitive moment, but that was that was a moment that that to chase down a total, and and I I wasn't right there till the end, but I was there majority of the way. I had a little bit of luck along the way, as you need sometimes as a as an opening batter. But um, I felt as though contributing heavily to a win was, was really important, and, and made me feel a really key part of that side. And um, yeah, I, I suppose that would be. I can't remember exactly what year it was. It might have been 2014 or something yeah, like that. Definitely but, was because I was looking through. Yeah, just some around then. When when you contribute heavily to a win, you, you feel as though that you, that you're a valuable member of the side, and it probably probably makes you makes you relax around the the stresses of, of selection. 
game to game. That, that doesn't make you relax in terms of your performance or or anything like that. But just the to have the the release of stress of am I getting picked next game? Am I getting picked next tour? I think that 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 can be really beneficial. And and I suppose around that time was was a part of that. Yeah, there must be no more satisfying feeling than smashing the palms around the MCG. <laughs> oh, just trying to get runs anyway is nice. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've always loved batting at the MCG for Australia. I've had a, a little bit of success there, which is nice. And what's your approach to captaincy and getting the best out of your players? Oh, I think you have to understand what, what makes them tick and, and how to approach certain situations. But uh, my my captaincy and leadership has probably changed a fair bit since I first had the opportunity to do it. I, I did it a lot in, in underage representative cricket and stuff, but taking over the Renegades captaincy year two of the Big Bash, I think if I looked at my leadership and captaincy then compared to what it is now, I'd be pretty embarrassed. I think I've calmed down a lot of, of, of I suppose, understand people a little bit more which which helps in that journey and but it all makes up for a pretty good ride to be fair I've, I've loved every bit of it there's times when you when you oh sorry I haven't loved every bit of it because there's times when you when you're kicking cans because you've made the wrong call or something like that and but I think it helps shape who you are and it helps shape the leadership style that you you sort of transition into as well yeah, it seems like you've got to keep a pretty even keel um, in those stressful situations. Um, no, I've got the dog barking again. Uh, what sort of dog yeah, is sorry. it? No, that's all right. What sort of I've dog? I've got two dogs. I've got two, two cavoodles there. They love sitting in this front room window and, and watching people go past. My wife's gone out for a walk and, and they think that every person that walks near the house is there. They get excited. <laughs> Marcus Harris introduced us to his dog. Um, a couple of yeah. months ago, cute one. Um, all right, last one before I let you go. How are you hitting them? You're going to head over and take on the Poms soon. Uh, I know you've been in the nets. How are you feeling form-wise? Yeah, it feels really good. I, I feel as though my um, game's in, in pretty decent order. It's, it's always hard to tell until you get on the ground over there and, and start start preparing uh, for, in the, with the lead-up to the games and stuff like that. But in terms of the preparation I've done indoors, uh, had one one outdoor hit today in Melbourne. Uh, yeah, that seems in really good order, which is nice after a long way off. Great. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Best of luck over in England, and uh, hope you uh, beat the Poms. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm Menes, and I'm with Paul and Jaleesa. And let's get into our seven-year anniversary special segment. Uh, Paul, you've got a lovely email from Jack Taylor. Would you mind reading it out? Yeah, Jack Taylor from Western Australia said, uh, Dear Menes and Paul, congratulations on seven years of great podcasting. My favourite parts of the show over the years have been Mad Menes and the commentary critique. I do think you guys have been a bit soft on some of the commentators, though. Paul sticking up for James Brayshaw annoyed me to say the least. <laughs> I love Menace's anti-AFL stance, and I enjoy the times when he's hard on Paul, Jaleesa, Ben Horn, and Joe Barton if they talk about another sport during the podcast. I also love Menace's exchanges with any Englishman or woman who comes onto the podcast. Some of my <laughs> favourite episodes were number 158 and number 159, both in November 2016, during the Australia v South Africa Test Series. Australia was not performing well, and I enjoyed listening to Maka, Menes, and Paul discussing it. I particularly enjoyed the criticism of Saf Duplatif because I think that he got off very lightly from the whole Minsgate scandal. To conclude, I rank my top five guests of the show. One, Josh, Josh Hazelwood. Two, Harry Conway. Three, Aaron Holland. Four, Lisa Staleka. Five, in equal place, with 
Barton, Maka and Steve Wilson. Thank you very much for the podcast. Oh, thanks, Jack. That was a great email. Thanks, Jack. I, I can, to, de, to defend James Brayshaw, I always used to think he's actually quite a decent commentator, but when he was on Channel 9 and they were in that ratings battle with Channel 7, they're always, you know, free-to-air cricket is great, but it means that you get a bit of free-to-airism where they're afraid that at any moment people are going to switch to Channel 7 so they had to bump it up, bump it up. And that's where Brayshaw was forced to do that. I think if he was able to just call the game um, purely and simply. Digging your grave, buddy. Digging your grave. No, you know, he's not my favourite commentator, but I think that some of the criticism was, was too much on him. Dig, 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 <laughs> dig, dig, dig. Dig up. <laughs> now, another message from uh, Robert Fairhead, and this one made, particular, made me particularly happy because he said that the podcast has helped make cricket an all-year-round sport for him, that he used to just focus on the AFL in the winter, but now with this podcast, he's, you know, been following cricket all year. So just to think that I'm distracting one person from AFL <laughs> is an achievement enough. You know, they always say just if you make a difference with one person, you've done something. Oh, so. I love seeing Ro- Robert's always like pretty good on the Twitter too. So I love yeah. seeing his thoughts on Twitter. And I just want to thank all the other messages that we've received. We've had lots of messages congratulating the podcast on seven years and me. So thank you very much. Clearly people want more Mad Manners, So stay tuned for that. Got a few key moments in the show history to go through. Kiwi Bob, listeners might remember him. He's the only person to host and produce basically a whole episode of this podcast without me when I was on holiday. That was back in 2015. I saw Um, this in the note. Who is Kiwi Bob? He's just a Kiwi and his name's Bob. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, Jaleesa. (laughs) Except for the fact fact that his name's not Bob. Yeah, well, you know, that's his alias. (laughs) Right, okay. Yeah, well, he was our Kiwi expert in the early days of the show. Love it. You know, I started the podcast in my living room and pr- have progressed to Gideon Hayes' living room, Fox Sports Studios, various locations at the SCG, the Aussie Team Hotel rooms, and I've even had Elisa Healy in my bedroom to record. So, um, yeah, it's been a, a lot of changes there. Joe Carsey, one of the founding members of the podcast, is the only panellist to ever be suspended, and his, his suspension was some immature comments around sexual innuendos. So, uh, yes, he's the only panellist to be suspended. Was his suspension, did he get relieved of this suspension or it's just ongoing? It's kind of ongoing, actually. I don't think he's been back since. Look, it was a controversial episode. Um, There's a band list on the podcast. Ed Cowan is on the band list. Gurinder Sandhu is on the band list. And I've added Steve Waugh, actually. I'm not sure Paul's happy about this What did they do? Well... Ed and Gorinda were just dogged a few requests and didn't turn up to a few things. And then Steve War, I just think, well, you know, if you're going to play so hard to get, I don't want you. Okay. <laughs> I think he's asked Steve War a couple of times and Steve War politely said, I can't, I know, no, thank you. And for that, he's been banned. <laughs> well, several times. So that's the band list. But seriously, there have been so many outstanding cricketers and uh, media personalities that have come on the show, and I can't name all of them, but I want to thank them all. Uh, yeah, a whole list of them. I, I don't have any favourites or anything. I sort of was looking through the list, and I've been so lucky to interview and have on the podcast a, a swathe of great talents. But uh, the episode with Stuart McGill has been archived in the National Film and Sound Archive in Canberra. So I leave uh, a little touch of history somewhere. Very impressive. 
I noticed that Hazelwood keeps coming up in everyone's comments as one of the best uh, best ones. And actually, that was probably one of the interviews I was most nervous about because I got half an hour alone with Hazelwood a couple of months after the sandpaper fiasco. And I was like, okay, I've got to ask him about this, but it's going to be very mm. awkward. I managed to ask him about it. And, you know, he's such a nice guy. It wasn't that awkward. So... <laughs> Yeah, he's a really nice guy. He just calls it like he sees it. Yeah, I when last year when they were flying out to the to England, I had sat down with Stark Lion, uh, who was it? Stark Lion Cummins and Finch. And I know what you mean. It was like not long. Well, it was a while after Sandpaper Gate, but you know, like Warner and Smith were back, and you had to ask all of that. And it always is this sense of like uncomfortable. But everyone's always so good about that. Yeah, and I think they know it's coming. They know it's coming, yeah. I noticed who you've got, and I don't know if this will make the podcast, but I have to ask, Doug Bollinger is the worst. Why? What happened to Doug? Well, Doug was a terrible guest. No, you're right, Jaleesa. I had him on when he retired, and it was a terrible interview. He was not interested. And so he's, he's like, hands down the worst guest ever. Like, there's, there's a sizable gap between him and the, the next worst. He should be on the band list just for that poor performance. Now he's got a job in radio, I'll never know. <laughs> so, yeah. Doug uh, is not coming back. <laughs> not poor Doug. You did some work on the guest list. Yeah, I was thinking it'd be good to select a um, top 11 in batting order of some of the cricketing guests that have been on. And I decided to restrict it to guests who played a prominent enough role that they're actually named in the episode title. So I thought there was lots of sound bites that um, has, have been obtained over the years, but I thought let's make it a little bit more prominent than that. And I got a surprise, man. Congratulations because, and I can say this without boasting because I don't think I've personally got a single guest on the entire show. So it's not, nothing down to me, but the list was ex- far more extensive than I thought to the point where I've had to pick um, a, a, an A11 and a B11 and then there's an enormous group of players of high quality that weren't in either. But here's my first Team 11, and I've had to squeeze some people into some unorthodox batting positions. So um, we're opening up with Manus Labashain and Michael Hussey. Then at number three, Meg Lanning. Number four, Steve Smith. Now, number five, Alan Border. Number six, Sachin Tendulkar. There's only a brief interview that Menace had with him, but it made it to the title of the show. I have to obey by the, my own rules, so Tendulkar makes a spot. Seven, Adam Gilchrist. Eight, Elise Perry. That's that's how good the side is. Elise Perry's batting at number eight. Nine, yeah, Pat down. Cummins. Ten, Josh Hazelwood. And 11, Stuart McGill. And then you look at the second 11. I'm going to open up with Elisa Healy and Lisa Salaka. Then Ian Chappell, number three. Mark Wall, number four. This is the second 11. Adam Vogel's at five. Six, Darren Lehman. Seven, Andrew Simons. Eight, Trent Copeland. Uh, lots of other good fast bowlers, but I've ultimately given the nod to Copeland. Nine, Jason Gillespie. Ten, Isha Gua. And 11, Shane Bond, who had a test bowling average of 22, if you don't mind. And then I'll just read out at shotgun speed, not even all of them, but some of the others that I had to leave out. Um, Hogg, Bird, Villani, Berendorf, Lawson, Fleming, Renshaw, Christian, Ailey, Stoinis, Payne, Fiddle, Ashnagar, Burns, Head, Ty, Watson, Neville, Julian, O'Keefe, Rachel Haynes, Rod Marsh, Carey, Ian Healy, Tywood Ahmed, Patterson, Russell Arnold, Mel Jones, Brett Lee, Mitchell Marsh, Lynn, Conway, Dwarshus, Nicola Carey, Andrew McDonald, Jonathan Blackwell, Agar, that's Wes Agar, Jai Richardson, Marcus Harrison, Ben McDermott. And after all that breathless list, I couldn't also help but note that if we're going to keep on picking sides from A side and B side and C side, when would Tim Payne get in? Because the number of wicket keepers we've had on the show, Adam Gilchrist, 
Rod Marsh, Ian Healy, Brad Haddon, Alex Carey, Elisa Healy, Peter Neville, Ben McDermott, and Tim Payne. And Tim Payne might only make our our F side or something like that, um, which is just remarkable. So well done on the wicketkeepers front, especially Minnows. I'm I'm annoyed Joe Burns didn't make the first or second team. Um, you know what yeah, that no, you is... could, Yeah, he probably would have figured in the fourth, I'd say. Do you know what these teams <laughs> remind me of? They remind me of something I watched while I was on holidays in over uh, the past week is Australia A beating Australia in what was it the mid 90s, Paul? Yes. Yeah, well, I was there at that game. Were you? Well, I was only yes. very small. I don't know if I was walking, but um, it Australia. I was in my mid 20s. <laughs> <laughs> So that reminds me of this because you've got two very, I can see the second side beating the first side. Possibly, yeah. I was at the, um, I was at the game before that where Australia A beat England. And not only did they beat England, they thrashed England. They had to beat England by about 30 to get into the finals on net run rate when Greg Blewett and Michael Bevan got centuries. That was a fantastic night to see the um, Australia A side give England a mighty thumping. And I think that the England paper the next day said something like... Um, too fast, too young, two runs. That's how much the... Uh, <laughs> they needed to two good. runs. Well, they still weren't, weren't, weren't going to win the game. Uh, they would have been 30 runs shy. But that was um, that was a remarkable summer, 94-95. Yeah, I think I watched that game just after I collected my first pension check. I, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was flicking over. I, I was flicking one morning um, last week and saw it and I went, who's in the Australia A side? And then everyone that came out, I was like, who's in the Australia side? <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah, Mark Taylor was opening the batting. Yes, yeah, exactly. and then, yeah. All right, uh, that was listener mail. Thank you for all that. And we'll take our final break. But before we do, if I can ask you, go on and leave a review on whatever app you listen to the podcast on. Uh, that would be a nice thing to do on our seven-year anniversary. All right, we'll be back with Can't Let It Go. All right, it's the final over of this podcast. It's Can't Let It Go time. Jaleesa, why don't you kick us off? Okay, well, this is an article uh, that I found about uh, left-handed batsmen. And it, is on a, it was on the Daily Mail site, which is not a website I'm overly fond of, but sometimes they have very interesting little sports articles, I think, because they're written, those ones are written internationally. But this article said the left-handed batsman, there was a study done in Australia with under-19s elite players. Left-handed batsmen get more runs, spend longer at the crease and hit the ball further. I am not left-handed, but I just thought, I just found this whole article really interesting and I thought, I can't let that go. Everyone needs to know this. I like it. There was a time when they wanted to ban left-handed batsmen because of the perceived advantage that they had. And they said that everyone should have to bat right-handed. So maybe there's something to that. Glenn Maxwell would be very happy to hear that, Paul, because he actually learned to bat left-handed. He's a right-hander, obviously, but he learned to bat left-handed while he was at primary school because nobody could dismiss him uh, <laughs> when he bat right-handed. And the I don't know if it was his teachers or something said he had to play left-handed. He was going to be banned from playing. Well, there's actually a theory that that cricket, when you, we actually should switch it around and say that left-handed batters are batting right-handed because your top hand is so much your governing hand and you get a situation like um, Adam Gilchrist, who I think uh, his right hand is his powerful arm. He does other things right-handed. So when he bats, he has that really strong top hand and he's not inclined to then swish across the line. You have Michael Clark who used to throw right-handed. Mark Taylor would throw right-handed. 
Brian Lara plays golf right-handed just because he didn't want to interfere with his um, technique. You look at the way that really? David, David Warner switch hits with such ease. And, of course, in baseball, you have switch hitters. That, that the handedness is probably overstated in its um, significance. And possibly what I'm building to is if I bloody well batted left-handed, maybe I would have played for Australia. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sachin Tanduka, uh, he writes left, but he bats right. Imagine how good he would have been if he batted left-handed. <laughs> Exactly. It could have been, you know, according to these scientists, which I'm personally so glad scientists are studying this, like enough with the COVID vaccine, too many people doing that. Like, let's study the important things. Um, <laughs> so it was 23, 23 runs compared to 19 was the uh, average of, so that's a difference of four. As long as the sample size is big enough, that's interesting. But I suspect that if they're just looking at some junior games, have they, have they got, um, you know, they need hundreds and hundreds of matches for that to be... Yeah, um, yeah. So it's, it's it's interesting that there is a higher proportion, a significantly higher proportion of left-handed batsmen compared to left-handed people in the world. Mm, that's true. Well, it was World Left-Handed Day last week. Is that why you brought this up, Jaleesa? No, I have no idea why I got so fascinated with this. It was World Left-Handed Day. Wait, so I just got really congratulations I, to all the left-handers out there. You were born in my nerd brain, like really dominant. triggered, and I was like, "Oh wow, this is so interesting." It's probably not. <laughs> it was mild. Interesting. Uh, Paul, what's your um? Can't let it go. <laughs> I should just add, I I write left-handed. I do everything else right-handed. I hate left-handers. I have no solidarity with them. I, I'm embarrassed to admit that I write left-handed. I wish I didn't. <laughs> I'm embarrassed that you do write left-handed. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> left-handed. All right. All right. What's your analytic? In response to Joss Butler's fine innings the other day, but on the back of a poor wicket-keeping performance, Ian Chappell wrote an article for Crick Info. Now, I like Chappelle. Um, Dad doesn't like Chappelle, but I do. Um, and we've had many debates over the years. But on this one, I'm not happy with it. Here's a, a quote from the article. And he's talking about selecting an all-time best side for, for Australia. When you have a batsman named Donald Bradman at three and a few other exceptional willow wielders accompanying him, runs aren't your main concern. However, with such icy competitors in your bowling ranks as Bill O'Reilly, Dennis Lilly and Shane Warne, you would better choose the best fielding combination. And he goes on to say that he wouldn't like to be the selector that chose the wicketkeeper that dropped a few chances and then added in that um, it's not like the candidates for best ever Australian wicketkeeper are muggers with, with the bat. Rod Marsh and Ian Healy made three and four test centuries respectively, and Don Tallon's top score was 92. And the point about all this from Ciappelli is that he's clearly implying that he wouldn't consider Adam Gilchrist in his best Australian side of all time, and that is bonkers. The second player I pick in my best Australian side of all time is Adam Gilchrist. It's number one, Bradman, and number two, Gilchrist. He is so much in that side. And the fact that he's choosing Don Talon over him. Gilchrist averaged 47.5 in test matches. Don Talon had an average of about 17. Now, you're not going to tell me that those 30 runs are going to be made up by um, Talon being possibly a better catcher of the ball, which he wouldn't have been anyway. Um, so it fires me up this whole notion of that you, know, you, you can't pick Gilchrist because he wasn't, a good, wasn't as good at love work. Well, A, prove, find the stats to prove it to me. You can't because they don't exist. The only stats that exist are number of catches per uh, test match. And on that, Gilchrist smashes them all. Um, but I'm not even going to go by that because that's not a, a valid stat, but it's the only one that comes close. I'm on a bit of a coffee hide here, so I've lost my train of thought. But it annoyed me. And <laughs> Gilchrist, <laughs> Gilchrist has to be in the side. I had a really good way of constructing this and it's gone. 
Well, that was Paul's Can't Let It Go, a paragraph in Chappelle's article on Crick Info. And my Can't Let It Go is that the, the CPL starts this week. So the Caribbean Premier League kicks off this week as we record. It'll be the first T20 league to get going. It's going to be played in one country, Trinidad and Tobago, and it's going to be played at just two grounds. It's a 23-day tournament. But one rule that stood out for me as being very strange is that there's a rule that each team must pick an emerging player five times in the competition. So it can be one player or multiple players, but basically they are sort of the CPL is ruling on selections by saying that, that each team has to pick a young player five times. And I think that's a very strange rule in a franchise-based competition. It's like saying in the Big Bash that, you know, the Sydney Sixers have to pick a young player five times in a season doesn't make sense to me. I'm fine with it. I mean, you always have been against youth development. You're always very much against the um, Cricket Australia squad <laughs> in the 50 <laughs> <the> domestic <laughs> competition out here. But, I mean, it's not as though these tournaments are pure anyway. I mean, they're, they're comprised of players from all around the world that have just been fl- flown in and flung in. And there are limits in terms of how many players you're allowed to have from overseas already. So another little um, stipulation like that, I think it's fine. Yeah, but what team misses the finals by one match and they've had to play some mug who's, you know, hardly played any cricket. And they, that's the difference. You know, that loss is the difference. Oh, Maybe that, they should have been better yeah. at youth development. Yes, exactly. All right. One, well, that was my kind one of, thing I'm really excited about um, to see in the CPL is I'm excited to see Chris Green return from his bowling uh, ban. And yes, he's captain in Guyana. Sorry, he's the skipper of. I Guyana know. I mean, I'm excited to see him back. He's had to go through quite a bit in terms of quarantine, five country commute to get there, and I, I'm just really, I find him so exciting. Arm straight. That's the next battle. Yeah, that's his next battle. I find him so exciting, and I found when he uh, did cop that bowling ban, his attitude was just so wonderful that I'm just really excited to watch him and see him come back and see how he's overcome that. Good point. I agree. And I, I hadn't realised that he was playing in that. Anyone who's been done for throwing, the, the, the mental strength that you've got to get, use to get back is great. So I'll be watching on him and cheering him on. I agree. He's a terrific fella and a good sentiment there to end the podcast, Julissa. Well, Paul and Julissa, thank you so much for joining me on this long episode. I suggest that we you both watch The Edge on Amazon Prime by next episode and we can discuss it then because, you know, we've seen Amazon's The Test. Now go and look at Amazon's The Edge and I'd love to hear what you think about it. That's a documentary about the English cricket team. And if the viewers out there and the listeners do the same, we'll have a, a riveting discussion next episode. How lo- How many episodes is it's it? One, one thing. It's like an hour and a half. It's just a movie. Oh, okay. That's cool. So it's right up your alley. Love it. All right. Oh, well, good. Thanks, Julita. Thanks, Paul. Both of you take care. See you all. Bye, listeners. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.